sitting, uh, and uh, as been said before, welcome this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, and we're going to be looking at verse 7 this morning as we kick off a new series uh, that'll last us the month of January, and this series um, uh, is entitled, This is Our City, and today's message specifically is titled, Loving Our City. So we're going to spend the next five weeks talking about uh, our city, God's purpose in our city, and God's purpose for us in our city. And in fact, the next three weeks, you guys are going to hear uh, from somebody from each one of the missional communities uh, sharing about how uh, God is uh, using them uh, to reach that people group uh, with the gospel to love and serve them so that they would know um, that they exist to care and love and proclaim the good news of the gospel to them. Uh, and so that's where, and then the last Sunday of January, as we do every January, we're going to recommission all three of our missional communities out for service this year. And so that's where we're headed uh, for the uh, month of January, as is, a, as, as is our custom. Uh, it was four years ago in January that a group of core people began meeting to plant Cross Point Community Church, and so this is somewhat of a birthday for us. And so we always take January to remind ourselves of why the church exists, God's purpose for the church, uh, and to remind ourselves uh, not only why the church exists, but who the church is. Um, and so with that, um, we're going to start that this morning. And so kids, you guys are with us again this Sunday. Remember, uh, the first Sunday of the month is the Sunday where our older kids are with us. And so I want to encourage you guys uh, to take notes if you can. Uh, if you guys hear something that is said, uh, feel free to draw pictures of that to help you remember. Uh, we want you guys to be discipled and learn how to, how to listen and, and hear God's Word taught so that uh, you would remember it and obey it. Um, and so if uh, pictures are very helpful in that. So uh, all of my notes are nothing but a picture. So um, you guys will be fine. But each year, like I said, we, we focus... Uh, in January on why the church exists or why we exist as a church. Uh, Let me read you a few quotes as we open. C.S. Lewis uh, in Mere Christianity wrote this. He said, The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, so if the church, if the church is not doing that, All the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself, are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. Hudson Taylor, a missionary hero, he wrote that the Great Commission is not an option to be considered, but it is a command to be obeyed. Mike Barnett wrote that the mission of God does not exist because of the church, but that the church exists because of the mission of God. I have often proposed the question to you of, of why is it that once we were saved, uh, if, if the purpose is simply our salvation, why at the moment of our salvation were we not immediately taken? But why, why didn't we our time on earth end? And I think that last quote sums it up. That God's church, and remember when we say God's church, what we mean is God's people exist living on earth for God's mission. 
That is to proclaim the good news so that the captives would be set free. So that those who are in bondage to sin and to despair would have hope. The question has even been asked that is the church even a church, biblically speaking, if people are not meeting Jesus? So you see, we exist. We don't, we don't gather just because we like one another. Because the reality is, is outside of Christ, we wouldn't like one another. The diverse backgrounds that are represented in this small group of people clearly says that we don't like each other. You're a Chiefs fan. <laughs> You're a Patriots fan. We even have a Raiders fan. Right? Seahawks in the back, up in the northwest. Right? But football alone is not enough to unify us. Christ unifies us. And so as we start this year, we want to take this time uh, as, as many people stop and refocus their lives, if you will. And, and, and New Year's is a good time. It's not a time that as Christians we reject resolutions and, and we reject the beginning of a new year, right? We don't want to reject it. We just want to realize that our life doesn't exist simply so that we can accomplish all of our resolutions. Has anybody thus far, three days in, accomplished every resolution that you made? No. See, we're bad. But that's why Christ came and lived and died. So let's read Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7 together. I'll pray, and then we'll walk through this idea of loving our city. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse, not verse 11. Everybody knows verse 11, but let's look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. God, this morning I ask that um, you would set our hearts not upon our city and not upon uh, our mission, God, but upon you. God, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And God, the way that our hearts are inclined, God, we know that we live uh, in in tangible ways according to what we really believe. And so I pray this morning, God, that your word would convict our hearts of ways that we don't live in accordance with what we proclaim to believe about you. I pray, God, that you would organize my thoughts, that I would love you most, and that I would serve the church well. We ask this in your son's great name. Amen. Amen. So as a church, I would say that we are somewhat, if I can, at a bit of a crossroads. And what I mean by that is that we are at a stage as a church where we need to take a step of maturity. And, and this is not a battle cry for action. What I'm, what, I'm, what I'm calling us to and what I'm telling us is as a church, if we believe in the priesthood of all believers, of all saints, if we believe that God's church is God's people, set apart for his good purposes, then the mission and the vision of our church cannot rest solely on my shoulders. It cannot rest on the shoulders of the men who are going through the elder process. It cannot just rest on the shoulders of the the men and women who lead in the missional communities and lead on Sundays. 
but it must be the mission that defines us as a people. That means from the oldest, oh, he's not even looking, from the oldest of us in here (laughs) to the youngest. And let me take a minute to remind us of what our mission is. Our mission as a church is to be disciple-making disciples so that our city would come to know and love the person and work of Jesus. You see, our mission as a church, this is what separates us. This is what sets us apart. It doesn't elevate us. Don't hear me wrong. This does not elevate us above other local churches. It's just what distinguishes us from other local churches. There are good, God-fearing, Bible-teaching, Jesus-loving churches in town that don't have this mission. And that's okay. God hasn't given them this mission and specifically this vision to see this mission come to pass. There are other churches in town that we work with and that I meet with regularly and that we hope to continue to grow relationships with that we can partner together for the good of our city. But this mission is what makes us Cross Point Community Church. Right? This this mission should be what says, what binds us together and calls us to say, this is our church. To be disciple-making disciples. Which means that I'm a disciple who is making other disciples that are making other disciples that are making other disciples. You see, we believe that, that the Scripture calls us to multiplication, not just addition. And certainly not subtraction. And not division, but multiplication. And the truth is, is that we live in a city where, we, where, where people don't love our city. You travel the state or, or, or people in other states who have heard of Bakersfield, and usually it's not for a good reason. Right? Uh, body parts are often used to describe our city. Uh, and when people do that, I quickly draw their attention to Trona. Because if you've ever been to Trona, then Bakersfield is an oasis. But the truth is, is that a lot of people, we don't love Bakersfield. People don't love Bakersfield. People don't say, when I grow up, I want to move to Bakersfield. Now, granted, there are some realistic reasons, some physical reasons why people would say that, right? Like, there's things that if I could change, I would absolutely change. The weather would be the first one. Most of you would say the air quality, I say the weather. Air quality would be number two. But the reality is, is the question that we have to answer as God's people with a mission to be disciple-making disciples so that our city would come to know and love Jesus is what are we doing to change how people feel about our city? We are God's holy and chosen people. We are commanded. Listen, get this. We are commanded to love our city. It's not an option. We're commanded to love our city. 
God has commanded us to live in our city and to love our city. So if that is true, then the opposite of it must be true as well. And that is that if we do not love our city, then we're missing God's mark. You remember what that means, huh? Yeah, from our Bible study, huh? Our young men's Bible study, huh? Missing the mark, yeah. So the truth is that if we are not loving our city, then we are missing God's holy mark. And we need to repent from that. And what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through this one verse in the, in the, in the remaining time that we have today. I want to encourage us not only to love our city together, but I also want to show us three ways that are in this verse that God very clearly shows and tells us to love our city. And so that's where we're going to go this morning. So look back at verse 7 in Jeremiah chapter 29. And he says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. Now you see, this, this presents us with a problem. The problem is this. Why are we in Bakersfield? You know who had a bigger problem than our problem of Bakersfield? The people that Jeremiah was writing to. The people that Jeremiah was living among. His kinsmen. God's holy people, the Israelites, who were living in exile. They, they, they were not living in the promised land. God, this, this, the context of this isn't this picture of the Garden of Eden Part 2, where they're living in God's perfect land in perfect harmony and obedience unto God. But because of their sin and their rebellion against God and His ways, they are now in exile. They're living among the Babylonians. Their king has been captured. They're, they're, they're not a, a people that are defined by their king. They're now a people who are beginning to be defined by heathens, if you will. And God tells them to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. So here's the truth that we all have to believe in. That you cannot love our city if you don't believe in and trust God's sovereignty. And I don't mean just a little bit. See, this kind of hits home for us because for four years, Katie and I lived in pretty much heaven on earth inside the California border, (laughs) right? We lived up in a small mountain town where there was snow and it never reached 100 degrees. And when you buy a house there, it doesn't even have an air conditioner because you don't need an air conditioner there. Small mountain. We bought our first house there, right? And the people we bought the house from couldn't even find their house key because they hadn't locked their house in years and years and years. That includes when they would go on vacation for weeks at a time. One of the first times when we were visiting, uh, we were driving through the the city streets, and there was a couple of teenage kids walking through the streets with shotguns over there, over one shoulder, and ducks over the other. Right? Like, that. it's normal. We walk in, the first night we were there, it's a Friday night, we walk in to Jack in the Box. And uh, it was, I don't remember, 8 or 9 o'clock at night, and it was us, there was one person waiting and there was one person ordering. And the people behind the counter were freaking out because it's never that busy. <laughs> right? And we're like, well, and where we're from, like, there's like four lines of this. <laughs> but that was just the difference. I could jump in my truck or my Bronco and in less than one minute, I was on a dirt road in the Sierras. Loved it. And then God sovereignly brought us back to Bakersfield. 
And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie to you and tell you that there aren't times where I wish I wasn't in Bakersfield. Right? Or or, or tell you that, that there aren't if you're in my missional community, you especially know that there's other places I would rather live. But the truth is, is that every time I question that, and every time my heart deeply longs to be somewhere else, I am not trusting in God's sovereignty over my life, but I'm trusting in the fact that I think I know what's better for me. I'm, what I'm saying is that if I were God, I could have done it better. I know what I like. And so if we're going to love our city, we have to believe and trust deeply in God's sovereignty. There is a reason, a divine reason that according to God's fatherly care, that each one of us are in Bakersfield today. It would not be better for us to be in Montana or Wyoming or anywhere else, back in Portland, back in Texas. No, you don't want to be back in Texas? Okay. <laughs> right, but, but listen to, there's, there, there is a deep, there is a, a longing in our heart to always want to be somewhere else. but it is not trusting in God's sovereignty. He goes on in verse 7, and he says, now get this, he says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. He's not saying, I sent you to this city for your, your, your obedience, because you have been such good children. But he's telling these people, like, this is your punishment. Like, this is the consequence of your constant wandering and rebelling against my heart and my ways. I have gathered you together and I, I, I have sought your welfare and I have shown you that I am the true God to be worshipped and obeyed and followed and you stayed with me for a little while but then you left again. Your heart wandered and then it wandered more and then it justified your own wandering. And so they were sent into exile by God. God's spirit through Jeremiah was telling these people that although you are in exile, you're to seek the welfare of where I have sent you. This is a part of my fatherly care for your life. And remember, this was not written to a prospering people in their own nation, but this was written to a people who were in bondage and captivity to another people. You might think you have it bad in Bakersfield, but you don't have it as bad as this. And so this is the context. This is the context by which God tells the Israelites to love their city. And it's the context that, context that we can learn from to better love our city as well. So let me give you the three ways that God tells them, God commands them to love their city. The first one is to seek our city's welfare. Verse 7, seek the welfare of the city. Welfare, the word welfare means peace, completeness, prosperity, or health. I'm not saying that every person in here is always going to be in Bakersfield. And I'm not, obviously, then that means that God's divine plan for their life is to move them out of, I don't know what God's, I don't know what the future holds. 
I can't tell you how long you'll be in Bakersfield. I can't even tell you how long I'll be in Bakersfield. But I can tell you that while we are in Bakersfield, God's will for us is to love our city. And the one way that we love our city is by seeking its welfare. Seeking peace in our city. Seeking the the health of our city. Which, of course, means what? Seeking the good of the people of our city. It's no secret that Bakersfield makes a lot of top ten lists. In fact, Bakersfield has made the top ten list of cities that make top ten lists. You guys thought baseball keeps crazy stats. Illiterate, illiteracy, lack of education, dropout rates, teenage pregnancy rates, air pollution, homicide rates. There's a lot of reasons not to love our city. But if those are the reasons that keep us from loving our city, then what it tells us is that we view our city through the eyes of the world and not through the eyes of God. Not through the eyes of a loving God who created everything there is to know. And his heart is to redeem and restore everything that is broken. You see, we are in our city to love it so that we would seek the peace of our city. We would seek the completeness, the prosperity, and the health of the people of our city. This is a command that God gives him. It's not an option. He doesn't say, hey, while you're in exile, it might be a good idea if you seek the welfare of the city where I sent you. He very directly says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. This means for us today that we vote on local issues. And we don't necessarily vote on what would be easiest for us, but we vote on what's best for our people. We vote on what's best for the welfare and the prosperity of our city. It means that we should individually and together be active in working to bring racial reconciliation, education, cleanliness to our city. We are to contribute to the rebuilding of our city, if you will. In the beginning, our missional community, when we were searching for a group of people to serve, we just went to a local park and we, we, we just picked up trash. And every time we would do it, I would talk to our, our group about how is it that as we are picking up trash in this local park where nobody knows, we didn't share the gospel, we didn't proclaim the gospel with anybody. How is this a picture of the gospel? Renovation and cleanliness is a picture of the gospel tearing out the ugliness of sin. The ugliness of self, the ugliness of greed, of lust, of gossip, of lack of contentment. Things as little as beautification progress show the work. It's a tangible picture of what the gospel does in the darkness and dirtiness of our hearts. The second thing that he says is is simply he says the the, the next way to love our city is, is to be in our city. Verse 7, he says, where I have sent you. It means that we're active in our city. We're known in our city. We're not to be recluses. We're not to be constantly talking down about our city. We're to be active. 
We're to be participants in our city. We're to do business in our city. We're to start businesses in our city. We're to shop in our city. We're to put our kids in the programs of our city. You know, it's really as simple as being proud of our city. Taking pride in where we live, not because it's the oasis of the world, but because it is where God has sovereignly sent us and placed us. It is easy. As God's holy people, the word holy, remember, means what? It does not mean do a bunch of good things so that you will be holy and you'll be better than everybody. The word holy means set apart. Us being holy is not about what we're to do. It's about who we are. We are to be holy because God is holy. We're to be set apart in our city for God's good purposes. We cannot be holy in Bakersfield if we're constantly longing to be somewhere else. Our lives should be engulfed and, 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 and embedded deep into our city because it's where God has us. Contentment is a deep, deep human struggle. And to be honest with you, when it comes to living in Bakersfield, it's one that I personally struggle with a lot. But it's one by God's power that I hope to overcome quickly in this year. And to be honest with you, I didn't even really fully realize it until we began preparing for this sermon series. Now, the third thing that he says for us to love our city is to pray for our city. He says, pray to the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, pray to the Lord on its behalf. On behalf of what? On behalf of the city, where God has sent them where they are to be, where they are to seek the welfare. Have you ever just sat down for a while and prayed on our city's behalf? Have you ever sat and prayed for our mayor, our police chief, our officers, our lawyers, our doctors, our council members? Have you ever sat and prayed against the crime that plagues our city? the prostitution that runs our streets, the drugs, the senseless killings, the gangs. And have you ever done it not just so that you could be, have, a, have, have, a, have a deeper sense of security when you lay down at night, but have you done it because it's what's best for our city? When you put your kids at bed at night and you pray for the safety of your kids as they sleep, do you pray for the safety of your neighborhood? Or is your concern only your house? Is your concern only those four walls? That It doesn't matter what happens. You know what we're saying when we do that? What we're saying is, I don't care what happens out there. Just keep me in mind. And that is not what God has commanded us to do in our city. And there's a promise attached to this at the end of verse 7. He says, Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You see, there's a very real truth that we reject, and that is this. 
that our prosperity will come as we seek our best. That's what we believe, right? I can't give because if I give, it's going to lessen what I can spend on myself. Right? Why would I spend money on people who don't even get a job? Why would I continue to commit to meet people who can't keep a commitment? Why would I continue to love and serve a people who don't appreciate the love and service that I give? Why would we do that? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. Talk about rejection by the ones you came to save. Talk about rejection in the face of selfless love and sacrifice and service. You see, we are called to do this because as I read earlier from one of the quotes, we are to be little Christs. That means that our lives should not be marked by what the world calls successful, but they should be marked by what Christ calls fruitful. And you know what that looks like? It's a little scary. It's marked by death. We sang it this morning. In Christ's death we live. Now listen, this is not a call to be completely foolish with our money and our time in 2016 and to seek the good of others at the expense of our own family. That's not what we're talking about. But what we are talking about is focusing our hearts to love our city, to seek the welfare of our city, to be in our city and to pray for our city. And God promises that as we do that, that is where we will find our own welfare. As our city prospers, Paul writes to Timothy to pray for the leaders of the, of the, of the government leaders because that's where you will find peace. Rather than, I have this conversation often, rather than rejoicing every time you fill up gas because gas is only two bucks a gallon, have you ever stopped and prayed that the economy would rebound so men and women could get their jobs back? Have you ever thought that it's better to sacrifice and pay a little bit more per gallon of gas so that more men and women could, could work? That's better for our city. I couldn't believe it. We, over at the coast, on the way to the coast, we saw gas was $1.95. $1.95 over at the coast at A.M.P.M. if you pay cash. And, and, and there's a part of us as we're filling up and we're pulling trailers, it's like, hey, I can actually afford to go over to the coast. No, that's not what's good for our city. What's good for our city is a healthy economy. What's good for our city is people who have money so that they can give. What's good for our city is people working for themselves and providing for themselves and not relying on unemployment. That's what's good for our city. Will it cost us a little more at the pump? Yeah. But it's what's good for our city. I'm going to close this morning by reading for you um, um, out of my, um, I'm, I'm going to do, uh, for the first time, usually my, my daily devotions, or I just go through books of the Bible, but I'm actually going to go through an actual devotional book this year. Um, and this one is called New Morning Mercies by Paul Tripp. So I'm going to read for you January 1st. 
Here's the bottom line. The Christian life, the church, our faith are not about us. They're about Him, His plan, His kingdom, His glory. It really is the struggle of struggles. It's counterintuitive for all of us. It is the thing that makes our lives messy and our relationships conflictual. It is what sidetracks our thoughts and it kidnaps our desires. It is the thing below all other things that you could point to that argues for our need for grace. It is the one battle that one never escapes. It is the one place where 10 out of 10 of us need rescue. It is the fight that God wages on our behalf to help us remember that life is simply not about us. It is about God, His plan, His kingdom, and His glory. This is precisely why the first four words of the Bible may be its most important words. In the beginning, God. These are the four thunderous important words. They really do change everything from the way, uh, from the way that you think about your identity, meaning, and purpose to the way you approach even the most incidental of human duties. Everything that was created was made by God and for God. All the glories of the created world were designed to point to His glory. The universe is His, designed to function according to His purpose and plan. That includes you and me. We were not made to live independent, self-directed lives. We were not meant to exist according to our own little self-oriented plans, living for our own moments of glory. No, we were created to live for Him. Where is this Godward living meant to find its expression? It is meant to be expressed not just in the religious dimension of our lives, but in every aspect of our existence. I love how Paul captures this in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When Paul thinks of the call to live for the glory of God, he doesn't first think of the big, life-changing, self-consciously spiritual moments of life. No, he thinks of something as mundane and repetitive as eating and drinking. Even the most regular, seemingly unimportant tasks of my life must be shaped and directed by a heartfelt desire for the glory of God. Now, I don't know about you, but in the busyness of life, I lose sight of God's existence, let alone His glory. Let's start the new year by admitting that there is nothing less natural for us than to live for the glory of another. This admission is the doorway not to despair, but to hope. God knew that in your sin you would never live this way. So he sent his son to live the life you couldn't, to die on your behalf, and to rise again, conquering sin and death. He did this so that you would not only be forgiven for your allegiance to your own glory, but also so that you would have every grace you need to live for his. When you admit your need for help, you connect yourself to the rescue he has already provided in his son, Jesus. Reach out for hope by reaching out for the rescue again today. So if you guys would stand with me, we'll prepare for communion this morning. I'll pray in a moment. So before we take communion, real quickly... Let me invite you this morning that if you do not believe in Jesus and in his sacrificial death, then we invite you to believe. It's that simple. Be saved. Love your city the way that God has designed you.
If you're here this morning and you do believe in Jesus, then along with me and my family, I invite you to commit to loving our city in 2016. To living lives that aren't focused around what is best for us and what the world would call a good reputation. But to live for the good of our city and the glory of God. So as we take communion, let me quickly remind us what it is. The bread is God's body broken. The body of Jesus, taken on human flesh, broken. And it's a picture of the physical punishment that our sins deserve, that our sins require. And the cup that we will drink together this morning is a picture of the blood of Jesus that was spilled so that we would be forgiven. So not only did he absorb the penalty, but he also extended forgiveness. It's what men much smarter than me have called double imputation. Not only did he give, but he took. Not only do we take, but we give. We give our sin. We take forgiveness. At Crosspoint, we practice what's called close communion, and that is different than open communion, and it's different than closed communion, in that we just believe that you have to be a believer in Jesus to take communion. You don't have to be a member of our church. So long as you are in good standing with another church, you're not running from discipline, and so long as you believe in Jesus, then we invite you to take communion with us. And now listen, parents, this goes for our kids. I give you this reminder every month. Right? If, our kids, if, if our kids haven't professed faith in Christ to a point where God's people confirm that profession, then we'd ask that they would with, uh, withhold from taking communion because uh, the Bible teaches us that you're actually drinking more judgment on yourself. And so out of grace and care and concern, we ask uh, anybody who doesn't believe, not just kids, but anybody who doesn't believe not to take communion. So with that, if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray. God, I thank you, Lord, that it is your fatherly care and it is not by coincidence that we are all here this morning in Bakersfield, California on January 3rd, 2016. I thank you also, God, that it was by your divine plan, God, that we looked at Jeremiah 29, verse 7. And I pray, God, by your divine grace that we would obey Jeremiah 29, verse 7. I pray, God, that we would love our city. I pray, God, that we would repent from seeking our own self-interest and living for our claustrophobic kingdom of one. And God, we would live for your glory and your kingdom. That the cry of our heart would be, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. As we take communion together this morning, God, I ask that our, our <clears throat> affection and, and, and our energy, God, for you would be ignited. That we would not view communion, God, as something that the church just does once a month or so often and we just go through this ritual and this practice, God, but, Lord, that our hearts and our affections for Jesus would be stirred. God, that we would personally and intimately be reminded that he took my sin, my shame, my sorrow. And he bore it on Calvary, not begrudgingly, but willingly. And as he did that, he extended forgiveness and acceptance 
and life forevermore. Lord, if there are those here this morning that walked in not believing, I pray, God, that your spirit would cause them to believe. Give them the faith to believe. God, overcome their resistance so they would find you irresistible. For those of us, God, that walked in here believing this morning, I pray that I pray that our belief would be deepened and strengthened. I pray, God, that 2016 would be a year more than any year in our past, God, that is marked by sacrificial devotion to King Jesus. Help us, God, to love our city. There are two communion tables uh, in the room. One